I'd like to talk tonight about the factor of self-acceptance in life. And I mentioned a few days ago that this practice really operates on two different levels. One, the psychological, the level of our emotions, thought, our personality, what makes us individual. And the other, the level of the, the spiritual, the level where we feel our connection with all life, where we find what in us is shared by all living beings, find that relationship to life itself. This feature of self-acceptance, I feel, is one of the root issues in working on the psychological level. And for many of us, um, at the core of many of the problems that we encounter in living. So I'd like to go into this area and see, see where this difficulty arises, how it manifests and how to work with it. When we talk about a lack of self-acceptance, it's as though somewhere along the way in our lives we've picked up a belief that if we were to express it, it takes the form something like, I'm not okay. There's something wrong with me. This is the basic feeling when we're not able to accept ourselves fully. And it's as though we look around the world and we think, well, everyone else seems to be getting by okay, and I guess it's just me that's having this problem, this difficulty. Of course, what we don't realize is that virtually everyone, to some degree or another, feels that they're not okay either. And so we're all sort of not okay in the same boat. We knew the truth of it. But when we come to believe in this way, when we take up this view and hold on to it, subscribe to it, it's the source of a lot of conflict in our life and the ground for a lot of suffering. To some extent, it's, it's something that we all share. I don't think there's anyone who's grown up, certainly in this sort of culture, who hasn't come away with a bit of this self-doubt, lack of self-acceptance on some level. And so I'd rather think of it not in black and white terms. It's not a case of, you know, do I accept myself or do I not accept myself? Rather, it's working with different degrees of self-acceptance. So for all of us, I think there are many ways to work with this issue wherever we're at, coming to greater and greater self-acceptance in life. Now, I think the universal nature of this problem is um, shown by the sales of a book that came out a few years ago in America. I think it's also been quite popular in England. And the title of the book is, I'm Okay, You're Okay. It was written by a psychologist who was interested in a type of therapy called transactional analysis, TA. And he looked at all these different combinations of how we relate to others based on whether we feel we're okay or not okay, and the other person is okay or not okay. And these different combinations of interactions make up a lot of our different relationships with the world, as it turns out. And this book, which is in the field of psychology, hit the bestseller list in the United States and sold in the hundreds of thousands of copies 
Most books on psychology sell, you know, 1,000, 2,000. And this was in the hundreds of thousands. And I think that shows that it was hitting something in people. There was a real response to that theme. And I think another testimony to the universality of this uh, problem lies in the popularity of a particular American comedian who is sort of the apostle of self-rejection. I wonder if you know who I'm thinking of. Exactly, Woody Allen. One of whose uh, famous lines was, I wouldn't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member. (laughs) In this sense of not accepting ourselves, not accepting aspects of ourselves, comes, I think, from encountering somewhere in life, somewhere along the path of our life, some emotion that we couldn't handle. It was too strong for us. It was overwhelming. And this, I think, is why the emotional life is so central to spiritual practice. I feel that it really needs to be considered an integral part of spiritual development because for many, many of us, Somewhere along the way, in coming into contact with an emotion that was simply too strong for us at the time, we've stopped our growth. Our growth has been blocked in some way. It may be a a feeling of fear, maybe an insecurity in life, maybe a feeling of loneliness that we didn't feel we could live with, maybe a sense of unworthiness that we came across maybe a degree of anger that we just felt we couldn't handle, couldn't cope with. And what we have tended to do, not understanding, being young, not knowing how to work with these difficult emotions, when one came along that was too much for us, the only way we could see to keep going was to push it down, to suppress it, to try to block it from our consciousness so that we could get on with the business of living. And we we hoped in that way that we would become free of it, that we would get out of it. But the difficulty is that anything that we suppress, anything that we push down into the psyche, unfortunately tends to stay on and on and on. So whatever strong emotion is pushed down, pushed under, begins to pervade our mind, pervade our being, pervade our life. So that suppression is no escape at all. Rather, it prolongs the particular state of mind. So when we try to suppress fear, for instance, our lives become full of fear. If we try to escape from the fact of loneliness, our lives become full of loneliness. And there's a constant struggle to keep that emotion from surfacing, to keep it suppressed. And that constant struggle begins to take a lot of our energy. So we're no longer able to respond to life fully. We sort of don't have all of our pieces anymore to respond fully to life because we're partly locked up in this inner battle. And when this happens, we find that we have a block. Our emotional life has been blocked and we get stuck at that point. And in some ways, our whole unfolding can't keep going naturally because of that block. And it begins to affect many, many parts of our life. 
Now this block is generally, we come to see it as an inner state, an inner situation. But it's also important to remember that it evolved out of a, a response to the outer circumstance. So self-acceptance always very much has to do with this play between the outer world and the situations that it presents to us and our inner response to them. So self-acceptance is not purely an, an inner uh, situation, nor is it an outer situation. It's one that rests on the, the interrelationship, the interplay of inner and outer. And then how does it manifest? What, what, is, what is the result when we reach some point in our life this feeling that we're not okay, that something is wrong? Inwardly, something is wrong. First of all, as I mentioned, there's a constant inner conflict. There's a sense of tension in this uh, holding down between the, the emotion that wants to surface, to appear, and the force that's keeping it suppressed. The conflict is also in another sense. You know, when you think about it, it's sort of paradoxical. How can I reject me? How can this happen? How can the self reject itself? And so in order for us to reject ourselves, not accept ourselves, we have to divide our personality in half. And there's one half that's the uh, judger and the other half that's the doer that gets judged. And uh, Fritz Perls, who is the founder of Gestalt Therapy, talked about finding these two sides of ourselves in our thoughts that he called the uh, underdog and the top dog. Now, if you know English, underdog is a, a word that's used to apply to someone who isn't likely, say, to win an election, someone who's not really favored in life. And then he coined this term top dog to talk about the person who's on top in that situation. So the um, top dog in our minds, and you can pick these characters up when you start to become aware of your thinking. The top dog is going, how could you do something like that? That was a really stupid thing to do. I thought you were more grown up than that. Don't want to see you doing that again. That's the top dog. And then the underdog sort of goes, well, I couldn't help it. it wasn't my fault. All those people made me do that. It wasn't my fault. So he sort of has this, you know, super parent figure, and then the child who says, no, no, it's not me. As the, as the integration process proceeds in our life, we find that these two sides start coming closer together. They start coming more toward the middle. But in the beginning, the self-acceptance is, is weak. It's easy to see these two distinct halves to ourselves. It also reflects in our meditation practice. So I think Christina mentioned last night, if we can't fully accept ourselves, how can we accept the present moment? Because the present moment is just a manifestation of, of us. Our experience is really the same as ourselves. And if we can't accept ourselves, we're always in conflict with this moment. It's never good enough. It's never quite right. Never, never feels complete. 
So in this, there's no peace in the meditation. There's no rest. There's no settling. Because there's always a struggle with what is. Now, if we can't feel good about ourselves, if we can't feel affection for the full um, range of our, our being, that's not a very satisfactory situation. And in fact, no one can really live with that. No one can really live feeling that they're not likable. Just can't accept. Can't, the mind cannot settle with that kind of sense. So if we feel that the um, liking can't come from us, we can't get from our own selves a sense that we're likable, we must be driven to find it outside of ourselves. And so our relations with other people revolve very much around a need and a search for affection and approval. So we look for this in our friendships, we look for this in our intimate relationships, we look for it in our work situation. We look for it in school. Anywhere we think that people might be able to like us or approve of us. We work very hard to convince ourselves that that's real, that that, that, that can be true. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it never works. Because deep down, we believe it can't be true. Deep down, we feel that we're not likable. We're not lovable. And so the message from outside that we may be likable, that someone may like us, can never really go very deep. We can never really believe in it. So no matter how much affection, how much approval we get from outside, it doesn't satisfy this inner need. And we're, we're committed to look for more always looking for more. So that, that, that need really can't be satisfied from outside, although we keep looking for it, keep wanting it. Also in our relation with others, we feel we're not okay. We can't let other people see what we're so-called really like. We can't really be honest with people because we know deep down, you know, if you really let them see what, you, what you're like, you know they won't like you. So we build a sort of false persona, a mask. And we put on our mask in the morning, and we go out and we present the mask to the world, and we hope, well, at least maybe they'll like the mask. I know they won't like me. So in a way, we're always hiding our true selves. Uh, Living in that way, we can't really come in direct contact with the world because we can't let our true self out. The, the risk of rejection is too high. So we always have to pretend to be something we're not, and in that there's a great deal of strain, a great deal of effort. And there's also a great risk in that. When we, when we approach life in that way, any new person that we meet is a threat. Because anybody we meet has the potential to see through our disguise. And we always live in fear that somebody's going to come along and say, now, you're just putting that on. I know you're not really like, I can see exactly what you're like, and you're nothing like that. 
We're always afraid of being unmasked, as it were, of having what we think is the true side of ourselves come through. Always live in anxiety of that. And because of that, if we can't accept ourselves, we're overly sensitive to criticism. If you really can't accept yourself, then you can't acknowledge, fully acknowledge any of your weaknesses. And we all have weaknesses. Everybody on this earth has strengths and weaknesses. But if we really are, are, are very um, concerned that, that we, maybe we really don't have any strengths and it's all weakness, we cover it over with this exterior that's all strengths and no weaknesses, then as soon as someone sees a weakness, we're afraid that the whole structure is going to collapse. And so any criticism becomes threatening of the whole being that we have built up, the superstructure of self-image. And we can't, can't take it. So generally, we, our response in that situation tends to be defensive. So if you look at your defensive responses to, to criticism in life, it generally becomes, comes because the whole sense of worthwhileness is getting rattled, is getting shaken, is fragile. And in our close relationships, in our friendships, and in our love relationships, because we finally found some source of affection that we can trust in a little bit, those relationships come to be very, very important. They, they become like a lifeline for our emotions. Without that lifeline to love, to affection, we feel we shrivel up inside. So those relationships become extraordinarily important and we depend very heavily on them. And where there's dependency, there's fear. There's the fear of loss, the fear that that relationship might be taken away, and with it our lifeline, our whole source of affection. And if we don't feel good about ourselves, still on some level we really wonder how other people can feel good about us, and we're sure that you know, there are 100,000 more people out in the world who are much more desirable than we are. And if our friends, and especially our relationship partners, start meeting all those people, they'll leave us like a shot. As soon as they find out what great people there really are out there, we know they'll just get away from us as soon as they can. So jealousy comes in, clinging, holding on to that lifeline. Also, if there's a low sense of, of self-esteem, if we have a low regard for ourselves, people can easily take advantage of us and um, treat us in un unkind ways, inconsiderate ways, and we think, well, that's only what I deserve. You know, it's just, just what I deserve in life to be treated in this way. And we, we, at times, lack the faith in ourselves to stand up for ourselves, to assert our own uh, human rights and need for consideration in those situations. Also frequently with a low uh, appreciation of our inner being, a lot of emphasis gets put on the outer. So a lot of care and attention goes into things like clothing and cars and the appearance of the house and the style of haircut and all these outer displays, hoping that the outer beauty can make up for the inner inner lack in some way. 
So these are the results, these are the manifestations of a, a mind that's divided, that, that isn't at, at one with itself. And they begin to, to percolate through our whole life to, to fill up almost all our relationships, almost all the areas of our life are affected by this conflict, by this frustration, by this lack of satisfaction, where it seems that nothing can quite come right for us. How did we get in this position? How did this arise for us? There are really many, many sources. And it can happen um, virtually at any point in our lives. Let's take a our life as very, very small children, as infants. And I think probably almost all of us at that time got some sense of not being okay. And it's almost um, a necessity, being a very small child. You know, children come into this world, they have this wild energy, no inhibitions. They don't know the social rules yet. So, you know, we've all done things like... Um, emptied the honey jar out on the new carpet and uh, taken our crayons and painted all over the clean wall in the living room. Or we've gone into our mother's closet, you know, and pulled down all the dresses and cut them up with scissors. (laughs) Or something like that. And then we're surprised that that's not okay. So we get these messages when we're very small that the things we're doing aren't okay and we start to feel, well, maybe there is something wrong with me. I'm always being corrected. Maybe there is something wrong. And of course, our, our parents seem like the ones who are really okay. Our parents are really in charge. You know, they're in charge of the world. They can do these amazing things like walk and, uh, and, and open doors. You know, they can actually reach the doorknob and pull it open. They can drive cars. They can go into stores and walk out with things. Nobody stops them or shouts at them. So our parents are definitely okay. But we as little kids, there's a lot of questions. A lot of question about it. Other people may have a a relationship with their parents that doesn't have much love, doesn't have much affection. I mean, this is pretty common. And uh, so coming into this world, not getting affection or caring or love expressed very openly, we come to form the view that we're not really lovable. If we were more lovable, well, I'm sure, you know, if I were more lovable, my mother would pick me up and hug me more often. I'm sure my father would would give me a kiss every now and then if I were really lovable. And because they don't do those things, I must not be very like a very likable person. There must be something wrong with me that the world isn't being affectionate. Especially if our parents tended to be very critical, as many parents do. Many parents want their world, many adults I should say, want their world ordered just so. And children to such a world are only a disturbance, only a disruption. So some parents grow up always criticizing their children. The children can't do anything quite right. 
And if we grow up with such parents, we really come away with the feeling that we can't do anything right. Not only are we not lovable, we can't even behave properly, can't do anything right. This, of course, is, is a real mistake. To ever conclude that we're not lovable is a complete mistake because this quality of, of lovableness has much more to do with the mind of the beholder than it does with the mind of what or who is being beheld. In other words, the ability to love comes foremost. After that comes what it's turned toward. So there's no one on this earth who can't be loved. There's no one on this earth who isn't lovable. And we begin to see that it was just a limitation in our parents' own hearts and minds that kept them from feeling and expressing that love. But we believe in it. We have believed in it. And it's kind of interesting how this idea is starting to really filter through the whole uh, of society. I work in Totnes, just a few miles away, um, in an office that's above a shop where they sell electrical goods. They sell televisions and tape recorders and things like that. And the owner of the shop was having some renovations done. And so some workmen were in, carpenters and plumbers, who were working on the um, bathroom in the shop. And these are just very ordinary guys, you know, dressed in blue jeans and um, beards. And I can guarantee they weren't reading the best-selling psychology books from the United States. And uh, I heard, overheard a conversation between two of them one day when, while they were working. And the owner of the shop was named Adrian. And one of the workers said to the other, said, you know, Adrian's problem was he didn't get enough cuddles when he was a baby. And just at that point, Adrian walked in the room and the guy says, isn't that right, mate? And Adrian says, what? What's that? He said, you didn't get enough cuddles when you were a baby, did you? And Adrian was kind of embarrassed, but he just laughed and said, oh, no, we never get enough of that. Never get enough of that. And I thought it was a really healthy sign that, you know, men... Ordinary men can start to joke about things like that. That really, really tickled me. When we come to start growing up and come to maturity, and we start to see the effects of our childhood, start to see how um, the results of our parents' treatment of it, sometimes we get very resentful. It's very common to go through a period of real resentment when we see that our parents really weren't very affectionate, really didn't get a, a sense of, of being loved, and the mark that that's left on us. And this can become quite a force in one's life for some time, this resentment. And um, I met someone earlier this year who was going through this very strongly. She was a lovely person. She um, was very sensitive, had a lot of emotional depth, very much in touch with herself in many ways, committed to peace work and social action, really a very nice person. But she was consumed by this resentment for her parents. And because of it, she really couldn't open to love, to loving or being loved, because this resentment went so close to the, to the bottom of things for her. 
And it's important to accept that resentment when it comes. But at a certain point in development, we have to realize that whatever happened in the past and whosever fault it was, the present is a different matter. And in the present moment, there's only one person who's going to be able to move us out of the situation that we're in right now, and that is we ourselves. And so, in working with this kind of resentment, at some point we've got to let go of the past blaming, begin to take responsibility for the present moment, and begin to work with it. Because no amount of of blame or resentment is going to get us out of this particular bind, this particular situation. And then, after we work with it enough, come to some degree of self-acceptance, we may be able to forgive our parents for that, those hurts. And at a certain point in time, we may even be able to appreciate everything that they've done for us. As I've grown up and um, some of my friends have had children, I haven't myself, I begin to see how incredibly much work is involved in raising a child. You know, just to keep a child clean and clothed and fed for 16 years is a full-time undertaking. It's really a full-time job. And I really have gotten a sense of how much my parents gave to me. All of our parents have given to us through, through that work. And um, at some point, we get clear of this resentment, there can be a real sense of appreciation for that, for all those years of, in many ways, selfless giving. Even though the love may not have been felt, even though we may not have perceived it clearly, those actions express a lot, a lot of caring too. So the love may have been there, even if we didn't feel it clearly. In this relationship with, um, say, our parents as an example, it's important to begin to tune in again this interplay between outer and inner that I mentioned earlier. And there's a cycle that goes on that affects not just the self-acceptance, but many, many areas of our life. And it's helpful to start to tune into this cycle um, in, in our life. And that is from perception to view to action. And um, perception means noticing something. And here I mean perception in the outside world. View is something that goes on inwardly we form a certain opinion or conclusion about ourselves or about the world. Action then is our expression back into the world, coming from our inner life. So just to take an example with the um, sense of being unloved in childhood, we perceive the world a certain way. We see our parents as being um, unloving. Whether they were or not is another question, but that's our perception. Our parents don't love us. Now, we could just, every time that happens, we could let that perception come and we could let it go. But we don't tend to do that. We tend to form a conclusion about it. The conclusion we form is, they don't love me, therefore I'm not lovable. 
we hold on to this conclusion, we hold on to this view, and it becomes part of our inner world, it makes up part of our inner life. That inner view, then, determines how we relate to the world. And if we really feel we're not lovable, then we really believe that that, we act, we relate to the world as though that were always going to be true. We really believe that that's how it will be from then on. So, for instance, we get in a relationship, we have a view that we're not lovable, and we expect to be rejected. We form a friendship, and we expect at some point to have that friendship cut off. We meet a new group of friends, and we expect that no one will like us, because this is what our interview tells us. Now, there's the opportunity in all those new relationships for a fresh perception to come. We might see that person likes me. I get that sense that person might like me. But that fresh perception comes into conflict with a long-held view, which is that I'm not likable. So we've got a conflict. There's the perception, someone may like me. There's the deep-held view, nobody could like me. Which do you think we give up? The fresh truth, the living truth, or the old view? More often we toss out the fresh perception. We invalidate that feeling of affection because we're convinced, we believe that it couldn't be true. We cling to that inner view. So, important to see this interplay between the perception of the world outside, the view we form inwardly as a result, and then how that view conditions our behavior, which expresses itself in our outer relation to the world. Ongoing interplay in every area of our life from the outer to the inner and back again. This is why people like Krishnamurti have made the comment, there truly is no inner and no outer. He says this is all one movement. All one movement. So we come through infancy and we find ourselves in school. Now, virtually every school that I've seen, except for a few alternative schools, are characterized by a real atmosphere of competition. That one person is matched up against another to see who's going to come out ahead. Whether it's in academics, or in sports, or in uh, beauty, or in popularity. Always this sense of competition. And what that sets up is the mind that compares. We're always comparing ourselves to others. And all you have to do is meet, if you're into this comparison game, all you have to do is meet one person who's better than you, and you feel badly. One person who's better. And it hurts. So we can say, um, I am not as X as someone else. And you can fill in X with any positive quality that you like. I'm not as pretty. I'm not as handsome. I'm not as intelligent. I'm not as funny. I'm not as popular. I'm not as talented. I'm not as rich. I'm not as good in sports. I'm not as well-dressed. I'm not as cool. And you just meet one person who's better than you in any of those areas and you feel badly. It's crazy. Sooner or later, we always meet someone who's better than us in any area of life. 
And this comparison is so unnecessary. You know, in the middle of it, we never stop to ask the question, how pretty do you have to be to be okay? How handsome do you have to be to be acceptable? You know, so that people don't sort of run away from you when they see you coming. <laughs> Here comes that ugly man again. We never stop to see if there's any sort of real standard, which of course there isn't. And it's as though whenever you know, we were to go look at a flower, we'd see a, a red tulip that's in, in bloom you know, in the springtime, this beautiful red tulip with its brilliant colors and, and uh, throbbing with color. And we look at it and say, well, the rose is really nicer. I wish you were a rose. You're not quite as good as a rose. And we discount it. We all are individual. We all have different expressions. We all are different expressions of life. We have unique strengths and unique weaknesses. And we all have those strengths and weaknesses. There's nobody who doesn't. And when we, when we compare ourselves to another through these facets, just these fragments of ourselves, we pick on a little fragment and say, oh, but somebody else's fragment is better than mine, therefore I'm no good. We destroy ourselves through this activity of thought, this activity of comparing. And it's not necessary. And this, was, this message was really brought home to me um, in the early 70s. I was hitchhiking in California. It was 1973, and the hippie ideal was still sort of in swing. I mean, that's really where it was at, was you know, basically living out the hippie dream. And uh, I was hitchhiking on a freeway, and I was picked up by this couple who were about my age or a little older, about 20, between 25 and 30. And... Um, they were, they were clearly not taking up the hippie dream. And uh, as far as I was concerned, this couple looked like they could have come from another planet. They were driving this old Ford convertible. I remember the car was about 15 years old. It was a Ford Falcon. 15 years old at that time, you see. And um, it was sort of falling apart. You know, the paint was really chipped and some chrome was falling off and the fender was dented. And um, the couple were not of the, you know, standard, uh, conforming to the standard image of beauty or handsomeness uh, type. They, they were the sort of people in my high school who probably wouldn't have gotten dates to the senior prom. And um, they, they, they were both quite overweight. And the, um, the fellow had on, a, had on a set of old overalls old dungarees and a cowboy hat and their car wouldn't go over about 50 miles an hour you know we're on a california freeway and everybody's whizzing by us at 70 in these brand new fords and lincolns and who's pottering along at 50 miles an hour in cars that sounds like it could die and it suddenly struck me that these people had sort of looked at the whole area of competition in life and they dropped out of it. They'd looked at what happened if they wanted to play that game of competition, and they'd said, no thanks. And they had gone, they'd just sort of gone beyond comparison. <laughs> and they, you know, and they were just living their lives 
and they had such a nice relationship. I mean, I, ha- I, I had such a good time in the car with them because they were cheerful, they laughed with each other, you could tell there was a lot of affection between them, and having dropped out of the whole thing, they weren't obsessed with this madness of living up to some phony kind of standard. And it was a, a, a really beautiful contact, actually, and a real lesson for me. So if we survive our infancy and our childhood and school, then we come to the stage of young adulthood. And this is the time in life where we have about three months to go from being a kid to being an adult. Remember that period? One minute you're being taken care of by mom and dad and everything's provided, and a few months later you're supposed to be completely on your own and a grown-up. And uh, within a few months, you really, you really may have to enter the fields of, of job. You know, you're supposed to go out and support yourself, get all the money you need to live, and um, owning a car, and then you have to learn about changing the oil and testing the spark plugs and what kind of petrol to buy for it. And relationship. You know, you may move in with someone, even get married at this time. And uh, for many people, then, this is the time you start to have children, so you become parents, get an, get an apartment on your own, get your own flat, and start to learn to cook for yourself. And all this goes on within a few months. You're supposed to make this transition, just like that, overnight. It's not so easy. That can be a very rocky patch of life, that particular bit of growing up. And a lot of us get sort of a few dents in, a, in the old self-image about that time. And I remember when I was, um, when I was 21, I, I sort of got into my first serious relationship. I was leaving university, and uh, Truman and I decided to live together, and um, it was a disaster. First time I tried to, to live with anyone, it was a disaster. And... Um, yeah, relationships are great. They, they can really bring out the very best sides of ourselves. When we're in love, we just see absolutely the nicest parts of our personality just unfolding moment after moment <laughs> for a while. And then the process of falling out of love may take place, and then we see just the worst parts of ourselves. And I was amazed at what came out for me in that relationship. I it took me a long time to, to get over it, basically. Someone said that um, self-knowledge is no good news. And that's the way I felt in that period. I'd seen sides of myself that I didn't know I was capable of. And that, it, shook, it, it shook me quite deeply, actually. It took me about a year to kind of get over having seen those parts of myself. So if we, if we make it through young adulthood we start to find some maturity in life. And um, it was very helpful, but it can be a source of more difficulty. We start to see that there may be a way to live without so much self-centeredness. We start to discover some of our human potential. We start to have experiences for shorter or longer periods of time where we're free of a sense of conflict where there's a, a real sense of well-being being deeply in, 
tune with life and we feel what it would mean to live with clarity without being so self-centered, without being angry or uptight. And these are wonderful insights. Very, very um, important to contact these sides of ourselves. But the trouble is, we can easily, so easily, turn these into new ideals. And then we begin to compare ourselves to the new ideals and think things like, well, I should always be loving. I should always be open. I should always be completely generous and giving. And it's not very realistic. And this is where the, um, where the should be comes in and forms a conflict. And basically we compare ourselves between what we feel we are in this moment and what we feel should be. And of course this can come in in our meditation as well. When we're given a goal like meditation on the breath, we can easily take up the idea, I should be with the breath all the time. And if we have that ideal, I should be with the breath 100% of the time, none of our meditation periods are going to be satisfying. And any time we're not with the breath, we feel we're not doing well enough. So we have to let go of that ideal in the breathing meditation, that we're supposed to be there all the time, and just be with the reality of it. Sometimes we're with the breath, sometimes we're not. When we're with the breath, then awareness is being developed. And whatever we do in that situation is actually fine. We do as much as we can, and that starts the meditation working. No need to compare it to an ideal. So we need, all along the whole spiritual path, we have to balance some degree of um, critical awareness, some degree of judgment, with a degree of acceptance. You know, most of us would never even start on meditation or self-knowledge if there wasn't some degree of um, goal for us. If we didn't have some degree of ideal that we wanted to move toward, a degree of being more open, um, wiser, uh, more loving sort of person, so that goal propels us along the spiritual path. At the same time, to keep moving with some degree of harmony, there has to be acceptance of the reality of, of this moment, acceptance of what is. So this interplay, this dynamic between the goal and the reality is sort of an ongoing seesaw in walking the spiritual path. And you have to acknowledge and work with both, both halves of it, both the ideal and the reality. And so then we, we may think, well, we've got life sort of sorted out, we've come into our maturity, we're working with ideals, and then we become aware of the process of aging. And the, the self-acceptance can move on to the physical level, concern with the physical. And you know, one morning about our mid-30s, we sort of wake up and look in, in the mirror and we realize, hey, I'm not young anymore. And then how does that feel? And call, so much emphasis is placed on youth and the idea that beauty really goes with youth and not with age. I don't know if you've um, really sort of taken a look around uh, cosmetics shops and seen how many of the things that are on sale there uh, have to do with aging. You know, all sorts of creams and lotions and potions to take away wrinkles and uh, make the skin young and soft 
and uh, colors to, to dye the hair, you know, to hide the streaks of gray or whatever. There's um, even special, I know that this chain in England called the Body Shop. It's all natural ingredients, so it's very good. It hasn't been tested on animals, so it's very good to buy there. And they have a special wrinkle, uh, sorry, a special lotion designed for these wrinkles around the eye, which are called crow's feet in English, because they're like the feet of a bird. So there's a special lotion you can get for the you know, wrinkles around the eyes at these shops. And that we may look in the mirror and, and um, one morning and notice that, hey, the stomach's getting a little more rounded than it used to be. You know, when did that come in? All these different signs of aging. And if it's not the stomach, it's the hair. You know, the gray hairs start to come in, as you may have noticed. And um, this really came home to me a couple of years ago. I went to a, a seminar at Amarawati, at this Buddhist monastery up near London. And some speakers were giving talks on the theme of Buddhism and social action. And uh, I listened to the talks, and afterwards a few of us were sitting around discussing what the speakers had said and the idea of uh, Buddhism and social action. I was giving my comments on various speakers and their themes. And uh, then I got up and walked off. And there was a, a fellow I didn't know who was sitting next to my wife, who was on my right. And after I'd walked off, he turned to my wife, Sally, and he said to her, um, who was that man? And she said, uh, what man? And um, he said, um, that middle-aged man who was sitting on your left. <laughs> it was only a couple of years ago. I didn't, didn't realize I'd gotten there so quickly. And uh, if your hair's staying in, if you, I mean, if your hair's not going gray, <laughs> If it's not going gray, it's probably falling out, right? <laughs> the other thing we men face. And I had a good friend um, who was almost, almost totally bald when he was about 28. And uh, by the time he was 28, he just had a little fringe left around here, a little blonde fringe. And unfortunately, he kept his sense of humor about it. And he said um, the hardest thing about it was when he washed his forehead in the morning, he never knew where to stop. <laughs> there's no retirement from this self-acceptance work. can strike at any age, any time. So how to work with it? How, how, how to go through, to get through this? difficulties, lack of self-acceptance. The first and most important thing really is the quality of awareness. Bringing awareness to the situation and seeing where we come up against the feeling of self-acceptance, how it manifests in our life, where it came from, how it makes us feel, and so forth. And when we begin to see how it influences us, when we begin to see how the mind reacts to that sense of not being worthy or not being loved, then we start to understand its mechanism. And when we start to understand it, we can get to some degree free of it. We understand our motives and our reactions to life. We, we begin to understand this interplay between the outer and the inner and our own responsibility in that play. Stop seeing ourselves just as victims of circumstance. And 
In addition, I think it's important in life to find um, find ways to develop a sense of joy in your life. And basically, I think this means finding things that bring you pleasure, finding things you like to do, but don't so much depend on other people to fill you up, but find things that you yourself like to do, possibly alone. And um, many people have hobbies that they've um, picked up in the past that they've really been into for a while, and often we sort of let those slip away. We say, well, my life's too busy. I don't have time for that anymore. But in giving those things up, we really give up an important um, source of nourishment for ourselves. I feel it's important for us to find those activities that really bring us that kind of pleasure, whether it's painting or music or cycling or walking in nature, so many things to, to get involved with. And if you don't know of anything, you might look around, take some classes, try a few things out. Work to, to cultivate that sense of enjoyment in life. Also, keep in mind your strengths and your talents. Don't forget the good sides of yourself. We all have lots of strengths, lots of good points. But when we're caught up in, in the self-doubt, we only look at the negative side of ourselves. So easily thought can just dwell on one tiny part of the picture, and we just forget about all the rest. So don't forget about that. Keep in mind what you're good at, where your strengths are. Something else I feel that can be very helpful in, in working with um, a sense of unworthiness can be service to others. And um, often our, our psychological problems can make us self-absorbed. All our energy and all our thoughts and all our activities can revolve more and more around myself, me, myself, and I. And this becomes a kind of self-enclosing circle. And uh, in many ways, the news can just get tighter. It's important to begin to see beyond that cycle. And one way of doing it, very, very helpful, is to work in a way that helps others. It can be through your livelihood, whether you work as a nurse or counselor or therapist, physiotherapist or whatever. It can be through um, volunteer work. Almost everywhere that that I know of, there are plenty of need for volunteers to help with um, old people or disabled people, many different kinds of needs in the community. And being able to give to others, finding that one actually has something to offer to others, really gives one a sense of contributing, a sense of making a difference. It can offset this sense of unworthiness, of not mattering. And finally, keep up your practice. The practice in itself leads to a greater sense of harmony in life. Developing, we, we're working here to develop directly wholesome qualities of mind like attention, like oneness of mind, like equanimity, openness affection, and so forth. All these wholesome qualities of mind as they come through more and more in the meditation, start to be felt and experienced in our life, there's already a growing sense of well-being, greater sense of harmony in life. And this is one of the um, strong features of meditation as opposed to um, 
I would say many kinds of therapy that provides a real boost to growth and development. The practice itself will bring more harmony, will bring healing. And as that healing starts to take place and our mind starts to come together, we don't feel so divided within ourselves, we don't feel so split, then the mind can rest within itself. When the mind's in conflict with itself over a key issue, like whether we like ourselves or not, the mind can't really settle. Always looking for some way around this problem, around this conflict. When we start to understand and heal this division, then the mind can begin to settle in itself, naturally. This oneness of mind, this state of samadhi, doesn't have to be uh, striven for. We don't have to exert ourselves with great effort in the breathing meditation to bring the mind together. It comes together naturally. And as that natural coming together happens, then the doors start to open for really working, really seeing on the spiritual level of life. And you may think this is a bit of a a contradiction, you know, to say something like, um, I must accept myself. Especially in Buddhism, which is supposed to teach you there isn't a self. You know, how can a self accept itself when there's no self to begin with? And somebody summed up this, this dilemma thought, quite neatly when, when they said that you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. It's basically pointing to the fact that we have to come to an, integ- an integration within the realm of the ego on the level of self. That has to be integrated and harmonious before we can let go of it. Because without that sense of harmony, there's not the trust, there's not the faith to really let go of self. And that's what's really required in in opening on the spiritual path. Not a destruction of self, not an annihilation of self, a surrender, a letting go of self. And that letting go requires a lot of faith, a lot of trust. And that trust, I feel, can only come from a mind that has healed these deep kinds of divisions. I'd just like to close with a quote from a book called The Shin Shin Ming, which was written by the third patriarch of Zen, well before 1000 AD. Shin Shin Ming means treatise on the faith mind. It's a discourse on the mind that, that can trust. And in it, the author, the third Zen Patriarch talks about what he calls the non-dual. The non-dual is that in life which is without a second, which cannot be compared, which is the ground of all existence, which is the unconditioned aspect in the universe. And of this he said, the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. The non-dual is one with the trusting mind. May all beings live with self-acceptance. May all beings live with affection. May all beings develop the trusting mind. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.